I'm honored by the invitation of Professor Dr. Harold Vial and Peter Bostrom to address the members of the Bundestag today. Uh, many thanks to uh, Stephanie Behrens, who's done magnificent work in arranging the visit here, and also to Ben Austin, who has been very helpful with uh, assisting in that way. I'm not speaking in any official capacity, but simply as a lifelong student of foreign military affairs, but one with a very deep love uh, and a great respect for the German people. And uh, so my remarks will seem to some somewhat controversial. I'm not offended by people with contrary views, but uh, simply offer these as my own. I favor neither side in the Ukrainian war. My interest is really in the stable, stability of Europe and, uh, and avoiding uh, a, uh, a growth of this uh, problem. My heart breaks for those killed on both sides and for the many people whose dreams have been destroyed by the war. But I will say that the war became quite likely when under President Obama, the West acted very recklessly and it assisted in toppling the government of Ukraine in 2014. And then when the U.S. subsequently began pouring weapons into Ukraine, a country with a very complex and very difficult past, war simply became inevitable. So I'd like to start by making the point that I'm not some left-wing pacifist. I served in uniform for 20, 32 years. Uh, I flew 269 combat missions as a pilot in Vietnam. My aircraft was hit by enemy fire on four flights. I then volunteered to fight on the ground with the 1st Marine Division. And uh, we made 70 very bloody combat patrols. I was wounded. My radio men were both killed fighting right beside me after we did a rubber boat assault across the Hoi An River to uh, rescue a surrounded Marine outpost. So I was first a Marine pilot, and then I was later an Army lawyer. Uh, I re- retired as chief of the criminal law division at the Pentagon, and I had uh, testified before Congress, prepared executive orders for the president, and advised the Senate Armed Services Committee. Then later, I was uh, a member of the Virginia House and Senate uh, for a period spanning two decades. Uh, with your permission, I would like to dedicate my remarks to the memory of uh, Fraulein Johanna Sittner, a woman who cared for me when I was a boy. Uh, I think she'd be pleased uh, by my appearance here in Berlin today. Uh, Her fiancé was a Messerschmitt pilot who died on the Russian front. She was a very beautiful dance entertainer who was trapped behind enemy lines as Stalin's forces surged into Germany. Uh, She and her girlfriend were very brutally assaulted by his troops. And as the girls dragged themselves away, she stumbled across a pistol that was lying in the gutter. She took it. And that night, the girls slept in an abandoned building. But the next day, more soldiers came, and they were looking for women. So the girls fled up the stairs, 
They climbed higher and higher until they reached the top story. And then they went out onto the roof, and they were determined that they would not be raped again. So they hid behind a chimney, and they agreed that they would shoot the first soldiers who came, and they would save the last bullets for themselves. So as Johanna held the pistol and she waited breathlessly, the soldiers opened the roof hatch. They looked around, but by the grace of God, they saw no one. They closed the hatch and they left. And so Johanna was able to escape, and through all sorts of adventures, she eventually ended up at my home. And so today, I dedicate my remarks to her memory. So let me begin by saying that, in my view, Ukraine has lost the war. Of course, the war is not over. The war may go on for quite a while, but in many ways it is already lost. It's become an artillery duel. Russia fires 50,000 shells a day, 10 times more than Ukraine. The Washington Post has said that Ukraine is almost completely out of ammunition, and there are no replacements for their Soviet-era ordnance. On June the 10th, the Post reported that Ukraine is suffering a 1,000 casualties a day. That includes 200 men killed every single day. That rate of casualties is doubled in a period of just three weeks. And let's put that in perspective. Vietnam was America's last truly bloody war. We lost 60,000 men across a period of 10 years. So about 6,000 killed per year. With a much smaller population, Ukraine is losing 6,000 soldiers killed, not every year, but every, every month. So this is a casualty rate 12 times higher than the U.S. sustained during Vietnam. Now, moreover, if you compare the populations, the much smaller population of Ukraine today with the much larger U.S. population back then, their casualties, Ukraine's casualties on a per capita basis, are 60 times as high as we suffered during a very bloody war in Vietnam. 60 times. Now, uh, the Ukrainians have fought with enormous courage, but they simply cannot sustain such high casualty rates for long. In my view, Ukraine is finished. At this point, the continued slaughter of brave young men is simply tragic. On June the 12th, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg all but admitted that Ukraine would soon be forced to sue for peace. He said, the only question is, uh, what, what price are you willing to pay for peace? How much territory, how much independence, how much sovereignty are you willing to sacrifice for peace? Stoltenberg's remarks suggest that NATO recognizes that this war is lost. It's become, to some, an unpleasant distraction that simply needs to be wrapped up. 
I'd like to briefly summarize how we reached this point. After the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, NATO was essentially searching for a new mission. In my view, it created the false illusion that the Russian Federation was a generic substitute for the Soviet Union. And on that premise, it began a relentless drive eastward toward the Russian border. At first, this was very controversial. Later, people came to accept it. Ukraine was essentially the final step to reaching Russia's door. Now, under President George W. Bush, uh, we had a uh, very fine ambassador, William Burns. He was the U.S. ambassador to Russia. And thanks to WikiLeaks, uh, I, I happen to be a fan of WikiLeaks because I'm not sure how we would know anything that's happening in the world without them. But uh, in 2008, there was a classified cable. It's no longer classified, uh, but it was leaked on WikiLeaks. And it was from Ambassador William Burns. It was widely distributed. It went to NATO. It went to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State. Um, and uh, he gave a very, a very insightful summary of uh, what was happening at this time in 2008. Uh, there was a discussion under underway about Ukraine seeking NATO membership and taking out a membership action plan, which basically is sort of the first of a long series of steps towards uh, membership in NATO. Uh, Ambassador Burns had been called in by Foreign Minister Lavrov, and uh, and uh, made the point quite dramatically. He said that Russia would view uh, eastward expansion to Ukraine as a military threat. Uh, they discussed the fears that the issue could potentially split the country in two, because, as you know, there is a very complex history with Russians settling in Ukraine a very painful history for Ukraine, frankly, but it is what it is. And uh, uh, so uh, Ambassador Lavrov uh, described this as an emotional and neuralgic neuralgic issue for Russia. And uh, neuralgic, I, I actually found myself looking up to just be sure. And neuralgic is where you where you feel shooting. Uh, nerve pains through your face, almost paralytic pains through your face. So he chose, Lavrov chose to use that. This, this was not only emotional, but would just, just was a, a terrible blow to the Russian, uh, thought. And, uh, and Lavrov said that he feared that the issue could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence, or a civil war that would eventually force Russia to decide whether to intervene. Now, this is in 2008. This is a blueprint for exactly where, he, where we have come. And uh, this was uh, under George Bush. Now, subsequently, uh, okay, uh, President Obama came along. But... Uh, 
So here we're, we, we reached a point in, in 2014, so it was not that long after we had this very explicit warning. But we had a new president, we had a new, a new team in office. And in 2014, <clears throat> the Central Intelligence Agency and British MI6 helped to orchestrate a violent revolution that overthrew the duly elected president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, he was installed uh, by an anti-revolution, anti-Russian revolutionary junta. Um, so at that point, you had uh, Crimea and you had the two republics that make up the Donbass, Donetsk and Lugansk. And these places, they were heavily Russian-speaking, and they simply refused to recognize the revolutionary junta that had taken power in Ukraine. So, in response, uh, they declared their independence. And without much delay, the new Ukrainian government began an attack on the Donbass. Uh, this commenced a bloody war that, that killed 14,000 people. And uh, the world took very little notice as this was going on uh, leading up to the Russian intervention. It was interesting that France and Germany both recognized the growing danger that, uh, that was faced. And they encouraged and facilitated negotiations among the parties And so in 2014 and then again in 2015, Ukraine met with uh, the Donetsk and Lugansk republics, and among the three of them, they signed peace agreements. The key, really, to these Minsk agreements was that Ukraine pledged that it would grant semi-autonomy to Donbass. Certainly, there would be things to work out, uh, things to make sure that that Donbass could function, uh, but uh, Ukraine did not attempt to implement the, the agreements, and the agreements failed. The reason that I think they failed is that by that time, the United States had begun pouring advanced weapons into Ukraine. And at the same time, NATO started teaching Ukrainians to use these weapons to kill Russians. Uh, in many ways, NATO was already conducting a proxy war against Russia, or at least preparing for one. <coughs> now, most Ukrainians really didn't want the war. They had seen a lot of war. They had suffered enormously uh, during all of their history. So by 2019, they, they became very tired of the, the first president who was elected after the coup, uh, Petro Poroshenko. Now, Poroshenko, even though he had overseen the signing of the Minsk agreements, he pressed the war against Donbass, and uh, voters were very eager to seek a peace candidate. Uh, They thought that Zelensky would bring peace. Uh, He won the election against Poroshenko, on uh, April 21st, 2019, and he promised to a joyous crowd that he would reboot the Minsk talks. And he said, and I quote, we will continue in the direction of Minsk 
and head toward concluding a ceasefire. And the crowd cheered wildly. But Zelensky betrayed his promise, and fighting accelerated, uh, and Ukraine began assembling a major strike force that dug multiple trench lines in anticipation of a bitter war that was about to erupt. President Putin was desperate to avoid the war. In December of 2021, now, Russia had made many uh, overtures to to explain their position, to secure peace. But in December 21, he advanced specific written proposals to NATO, uh, which took them under consideration, but eventually dismissed them out of hand. So with the hopes for peace dashed, faced with an imminent attack against the Russian-speaking Donbass, President Putin ordered his special military operation into Ukraine. Now, it's interesting to note that Russia had delayed attacking during all this time that NATO had these agreements under consideration. So by the time that NATO had clearly rejected the, the attempt at peace, the ground had begun thawing. And this made off-road armored vehicles attacks, uh, attacks very difficult or impossible. And so you had long convoys of Russian vehicles that were bunched up and vulnerable along the Russian or the Ukrainian roads and highways. This is the importance of the weather. Had the, had the ground been, been firm, these vehicles could have moved off road, but they were bunched up, they were vulnerable. And no one knows the importance of weather better than the Russians. No one. Perhaps the Germans know it. Perhaps the French know it. But the Russians know it best of all. So, in my view, this delay suggests a very desperate final grasp at achieving peace by the Russians. Now, they went in, and frankly, they did not have nearly enough forces massed for an attack. The rule of thumb that all military people know is that the attacking force, where they choose to attack, should have a, a majority of three to one. You learn this as a lieutenant, three to one, three to one. Uh, Russia attacked with less than a one-to-one ratio. It's a very small ratio, and the numbers are a little uncertain. But it was nowhere near the three-to-one that they needed. Additionally, uh, they, uh, uh, they had the disadvantage that they were attacking under very strict rules of engagement that were designed to minimize casualties and property damage in the hopes that the Ukrainian resistance would be light, that perhaps they'd receive a lot of assistance from Russian-speaking people, and the operation would be brief. I personally think, having read some documents that were drafted by President Putin, that he had a bit of a romanticized vision of the relationship among Slavic people. Mm. Uh, and like, like all of us, we tend to be victims of our, of our own history and our own viewpoint. And I think he had this 
vision that that other Slavic people would would desire to uh, uh, to uh, uh, have have this brotherhood uh, with Russia. Um, now, instead, of course, they found themselves fighting a very determined enemy, uh, an enemy who uh, did not have a, a terribly fond view of Russians from their history under Lenin and Stalin. So before long, Russia revised its strategy to confront the very stiff resistance with greater force. Now, at the very outset, the United States uh, rallied the West mightily, uh, demonizing things that were Russian, censoring all contrary news coverage, and uh, implementing unprecedented financial and trade sanctions. So where does this put us today? First of all, the sanctions have failed. Uh, even though the entire financial might of the Western world was unleashed against Russia uh, and the Biden administration swore they would crush the ruble, they boasted of destroying the Russian economy, inspiring a revolution. Today, the ruble is stronger than before the war. It's been the strongest of all currencies. Russian inflation surged and peaked at around 15% and has begun to decline. But as their inflation tops out, America's and Europe's inflation has begun skyrocketing very dangerously. Biden's attempt to strangle trade with Russia has failed. Uh, the Economist reports that Russia is generating a, a record trade surplus, uh, $250 billion this year, twice as much as last year. And despite the sanctions, Russia is forging ever stronger trade ties with China, with India, South Africa, Iran, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, all of which continue trading with it. We're finding that dictating sanctions policy to sovereign nations is diminishing its effectiveness and, uh, and frankly, I think, diminishing the world's respect for America. From the outset of the war, the Russians never have, the Russian people, the common people, have never experienced shortages of food, housing, heating fuel, or gasoline. All of the essentials of life are still there in abundance. And what we're seeing is that Russia's self-sufficiency in major commodities makes it tremendously resilient to sanctions. Uh, anyone who thinks that uh, the Russians will crack because they lack Gucci purses or McDonald's hamburgers <laughs> simply does not understand the Russian psyche. That's true. Meanwhile, the hopes of ousting President Putin have died. Uh, on March the 1st, Boris Johnson predicted that sanctions would bring down the Putin regime. Since then, Boris Johnson was nearly ousted from office through a parliamentary vote of no confidence. And at the same time, Putin's popularity has risen to 83 percent, which is higher than any of his Western counterparts. <laughs> Meanwhile, the propaganda war has begun to unravel a bit. 
At the beginning of the war, the U.S. launched a carefully orchestrated barrage of anti-Russian propaganda, and all dissenting voices were blocked. Western media, including all of the West and and European Union, uh, breathlessly reported the dramatic exploits of the ghost of Kiev, a pilot so skillful that he shot down 40 Russian jets before dying heroically in battle. But the ghost of Kiev was a complete fiction, a hoax. He was a media concoction, a fraud who never existed at all. Another false report told of Ukrainian border guards who were trapped by the Russian Navy on Snake Island. It was reported that they refused to surrender. They cursed their tormentors and fought to the death. Zelensky even announced that he would give every one of them the nation's highest honor, the hero of Ukraine. But this, too, was deliberately planned as a fraud and a hoax. There were guards, but when they were confronted, they promptly surrendered. They did, they did the sensible thing. And they were taken unharmed aboard a Russian vessel and soon returned to Ukraine as part of a prisoner swap. The use of deliberately concocted stories like these undermines Ukraine's allegations, whether it's war crimes or their own battlefield victories. It's not that they aren't to be listened to, but it it suggests that they should be listened to with a with a grain of salt. So where do we stand today? Now, recent news reports have begun acknowledging the likelihood of a Ukrainian defeat. On May the 24th, former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger said that Ukraine should give up territory to Russia to end the war. By June the 10th, Newsweek was reporting that even the deputy head of Ukrainian military intelligence admitted that Ukraine was at risk of losing the war to Russia. And then on June the 12th, of course, we heard Secretary General Stoltenberg discussing the terms for peace as though uh, it was inevitable. However, I will say that, uh, that uh, the Secretary General has since backtracked and is now saying that we should dig in for a long war. Um, we'll see which which of his truths turns out to be accurate. Uh, we even see now a scramble to re- reposition uh, based on the direction the war is taking. Early in the war, Pope Francis chastised the Russian Orthodox patriarch, Kirill, who explained Russia's justification for invading Ukraine. And the Pope Francis uh, cautioned, he said, you, you don't want to become uh, uh, President Putin's altar boy, uh, rather contemptuous language. But by June the 15th, the Pope was backtracking. He admitted that the war might have been provoked. Of course, that was Patriarch Kirill's uh, position all along. That's what he had been telling the Pope. And today, the Wall Street Journal reports that Turkey 
has suspended the selling of weapons to Ukraine. Uh, the, the, the Turks, you can always depend on, will be flexible in their approach, and uh, they, they have a, a finger to the wind, and I think the fact that their finger is to the wind should be some evidence of the direction that things might be going. <laughs> I mention also that you, the, the Americans are losing interest in the war. It's been uh, published in the a British outlet, the Express. Uh, they, they had a poll saying that Americans now think that the shortage of baby formula is five times more important than the war in Ukraine. And that it, it breaks my heart because we, in, in many ways, the United States has sent these young men off to die. And now we're shifting and saying, well, your death is fine, but baby formula is, is so much more important. Um, most Americans now believe, a majority believe, that the U.S. has been hurt by sanctions worse than Russia. But I will tell you that America is richly endowed by the commodities that have been cut off. Europe is not. So where we suffer from the sanctions that we have imposed, Europe suffers much more greatly. For this reason, Europe has really been one of the big losers in the war. Uh, the U.S. sanctions uh, have been blocking the the receipt of low-cost, reliable Russian gas and oil, made it much more difficult to uh, to obtain these things. Um, the sanctions are certainly battering the European uh, economy. And just recently in Brussels, they have been uh, holding large demonstrations, large for, for Brussels, 70,000, 80,000. And they are... They are protesting inflation, and they're protesting the spending of war, of money on war rather than on the people. I point out that America's bizarre, long-lasting infatuation with so-called alternative energy has put pressure on Europe to dismantle its cheap, dependable, coal-fired power plants, uh, and instead to depend on fickle wind and solar power, which are notoriously unreliable and totally inadequate to power a muscular industrial economy such as Germany's. Um, I, I, I will mention to you, I did some, some lengthy study to determine something is very difficult, which is to figure out not only what part of our, uh, our our electrical grid is solar and wind powered? But what? How about the entire power? The entire power requirements? And uh, and I came down to the point that after 40 years of immense subsidies and political pressure, uh, the United States has about four and a half percent of its total power coming from solar and wind. It's taken us 40 years to reach 4.5%. And then people say, well, we wish 
We, we, we will it to be so. We will have solar and wind and we'll do away with everything else. It's nonsense. It's, it's a fiction. It's superstitious. It's not going to happen. I see there are a few voices of agreement here on that point. Uh, um, but in any event, we have, we have forced you into this posture and, uh, in response, for 11 years, Germany has worked intensely, uh, cooperatively with Russia, with some other c- countries, in order to put into place the, uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I have to t- I'm always rooting for Germany. I'm always, I want, I, I'm hoping for Germany. And, uh, and I, I was so pleased that the pipeline was finished. It was actually completed after 11 years. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, along comes the war, and pressure is put on Germany, and an enormously important project that would have a tremendous impact on the German economy was dismantled. And uh, in my view, Germany stopped the race for reliable energy just as it reached the very finish line. It was a great tragedy, not only for Germany, but for the entire European Union, which requires reliable fuel. I worry that the actions like, like the halting of the, of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, suggest that Europe is no longer fully sovereign, that it has become subordinate to the whims of London and Washington, uh, which I, I see as, as a negative, not only for, for Europe, but also for the United States. Before the war, Europe functioned quite well with moderate defense budgets. Russia presented no threat. China was an important trading partner. I was quite surprised to stumble over some figures that showed that Germany, before all of this started, had 200 functional military tanks. Now, the last time that I spent long period here, was in the, at the height of the Cold War, there were thousands of, of German tanks. The border was bristling with weapons. And to me, the fact that Germany was relying on 200 military tanks, Americans will tell you, oh, it's because they just rely on us. Now, I think... Certainly, there's reliance on the on NATO and so forth, but if Germany felt threatened by Russia, Germany would not have 200 tanks in its arsenal. I guarantee you that. I should not say that to you. You you are the ones who know, but I, I've lived through this before. However, the war hysteria has forced this unnecessary arms race and imposed continuing. Uh, war taxes on you for weapons that will continue to drag the European economy into the foreseeable future. Now, ironically, this march to war has effectively subordinated the EU to NATO. And in this way, because of this ascendancy of NATO and and the fact that uh, the EU is sort of looking to them for guidance, 
It really has put Great Britain back into a position of dominance over continental Europe in spite of Brexit and the fact that they have bailed out. They didn't bail out of NATO, and so now they're back in the catbird seat. So what will happen to Russia? I think that Russia will emerge from this war a far greater power than before. Uh, They will almost certainly absorb parts of Ukraine into the larger nation. Uh, I'm hopeful that they will only bring in those portions that are heavily Russian, heavily Russian-speaking. Um, but uh, but this, this is happening during a period where the, the West has undergone a very prolonged period of moral and financial decay. At the same time, if you look at what's happened with the Russian ruble, Russia emerged from the ashes of the old Soviet Union and developed a sound gold-supported currency, and they had very little debt. Uh, In 2020, uh, Russia was said to have less than 20 percent GDP as debt. And again, uh, you, you can't go in and exchange your rubles for gold, but but nations can go in and exchange their rubles for gold. So it, it has been very strong. And this is the reason that uh, that the ruble has retained its strength. Uh, they have not relied on, on tremendous money, money printing. So you look at this and then you compare it with the profligate money printing in America and some in, in the EU, and you have to ask yourself why – have we ignored the lessons of the Weimar Republic when Russia has not? So, here we are. We've had these enormous calls for war. I'll just summarize a few of them. Uh, we have a, a Republican Senator, Roger Weicker, uh, U.S. Senator, and uh, December of 2021, He said, don't rule out attacking Russia with nuclear weapons. He said, we we won't rule out first use of nuclear action. Now, he also said, we won't rule out putting American troops on the ground. First use of nuclear weapons. What he's talking about is a surprise attack on Russia with nuclear weapons raining down on St. Petersburg and Moscow. How does this sound to people on the other side who are looking and saying, well, they're telling us to trust NATO. And here they are calling for the first use for a surprise attack by nuclear. I'm not saying that this is a widely held view, but at the same time, uh, uh, Senator Weicker is very, very senior uh, within the uh, Within the U.S. Senate, um, we had uh, we had Senator Chris Coons, uh, a Democrat from Delaware, and he said that the U.S. should, should send troops to fight alongside the Ukrainians. He said only the U.S. can stop Russian President Vladimir Putin. And of course, you're talking about Americans fighting Russians, and you're talking about the Third World War. 
Another great war. We saw the First World War. We saw the Second World War. We've tried to do everything to avoid it, but now we're beginning to to forget those those things. We had uh, we had the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, who came over here in May, and she pledged war until victory is won. Uh, now, a week later, our Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, came and they basically said, we're going to back Ukraine as long as it takes. It was sort of an open-ended pledge. Um, now, to his credit, President Biden said last month, he said, uh, he said, if, if we send American planes and tanks to fight. He says, that's called World War III, okay? Let's get it straight here, guys. That's the way he talks. Um, and he said, we will not fight the Third World War in Ukraine. So he was trying to pull back some of this insane talk. But the next thing we know, his wife, Jill, Jill Biden, goes to Ukraine She's wearing a Ukrainian flag pin, trying to drum up sympathy for Ukraine, making a tour of European nations. This has been done before. The wife of Franklin Roosevelt. She went around making similar tours before the Second World War. And Franklin Roosevelt had insisted he was opposed to the war. But then he started the Lend-Lease Program, that began sending shipments of arms to Europe and essentially committing the U.S. to World War II. It's interesting that uh, a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, the U.S. Congress approved what they called a Lend-Lease Act. They used the same language that was used when Franklin Roosevelt dragged the nation into World War II with disastrous consequences, I think, uh, for the world. And uh, so we don't know. Uh, So far, President Biden has been speaking the right talk, but it leaves me a bit nervous about uh, exactly where we stand. So we see these these moves, and... uh, the risk of nuclear war still remains. We keep hearing these voices, even after President Biden has spoken. Heather Connolly, head of the influential German Marshall Fund, said she does not rule out further escalation, saying the West mustn't be intimidated by Russia. And she said, we must prepare for the use of tactical nuclear weapons. That is a quote from Heather Connolly of the German Marshall Fund. I think it's important for Western leaders, uh, perhaps the chancellor, perhaps uh, perhaps France could also speak out and strongly condemn any talk of nuclear war and any talk of NATO somehow being dragged into a ground war or an air war against Russia. Even referring, this was a, uh, a member of, of the Polish parliament just several days ago, he was referring to Finland and Sweden coming into the uh, to the uh, uh, to NATO, and uh, there was a comment made by NATO's deputy 
Secretary General uh, Lagrange, she said, well, member states are free to deploy or not deploy nuclear weapons as they please. This is suggesting to Russia that, okay, if Finland and Sweden come in, yes, you might have nuclear weapons right in, in Finland. Uh, this is madness. I mean, this kind of crazy talk uh, really threatens uh, to trigger an outbreak, uh, perhaps something inadvertent that starts and escalates and sees us thrown into a global nuclear holocaust, something that uh, uh, would just be inconceivable. So we mustn't have that happen. Uh, I suggest, and this is, this is one person's idea, and your ideas are, are certainly as, as good as mine, but I served here, uh, uh, and during that time, we, we came to East Berlin. It was occupied by Soviet troops. It would take me too long, but I will tell you the tension was immense. I walked in in an American military uniform, and people were very friendly. They they didn't dare to speak, but you could just see sometimes a teenager who was overly daring would would go like this. He would raise a, a thumbs up very very <coughs> quietly. Uh, sometimes there would be just a gentle smile or something, but you could feel. You feel from the, the German people that they, they desired to be lifted from under the oppression and, and they looked at the Americans as sort of the least, the least, uh, damaging alternative that they could seek. Um, so we saw this. Now, in all that tension, and there were thousands and thousands of artillery pieces, tanks, everything lined up, we went also across the border into Austria. I didn't know much about Austria, the background of it, but I was delighted and surprised. We drove across, we went to, we went to Salzburg, and then we went into Vienna. They were celebrating Chris Crindle, uh, the Chris Crindle Mart, uh, at Christmas, and, uh, it was joyous. People were celebrating, people were drinking, they were laughing, they were singing. It was prosperous. Uh, it was such a departure from anything you see in the East. And then I learned that <clears throat> this came about from the Austrian State Treaty of 1955. And there's confusion about how we reached this point, but during the Cold War, the Soviet Union agreed with the occupying powers, the Allied powers, that they would remove all of their troops from Austria and... In exchange, Austria would change its constitution. It would say two things. First, that Austria would remain forever neutral. And second, that Austria would not allow foreign troops on its soil, ever. I don't know how much they have abided by this. I think they abided by it strictly for a long time. But... All the military forces were removed, and Austria became this dream world, this this little heaven on earth, in the midst of all the tensions uh, of, of nuclear war. 
And uh, so my suggestion would be that Ukraine begin with that as a framework. And perhaps they suggest something like this to NATO and, and to Russia. Uh, NATO could do a separate treaty. We could create a nuclear buffer zone that would protect both sides from some accidental thing that happens, something where some crazy Russian or some crazy American or some crazy German just flies off the handle and does something. And uh, so a thousand-mile buffer, 1,600 kilometers, uh, well, we couldn't get back. We, it might be much, it'd be half that because we've already moved so far, but it would be a large buffer because Ukraine is, is large. Um, if the, if the Ukrainians acted soon enough before their defensive lines collapse, Ukraine might demand control over the coastal areas surrounding the port at Odessa so that they retain the ability to to transit through the port of Odessa. They could also insist on controlling the capital of Kiev on both sides of the Dnieper River because there is a portion of it that uh, that is on the east side. And then, of course, the sides could, could debate the limits of, of who should control what. But I think at least it would be a starting framework for peace and uh, something that should be done. I, my heart breaks when I see the pictures of the dead Ukrainians, when I see the dead Russians. Uh, I have dragged the bodies of so many Marine dead from the white rice paddies in Vietnam. I've flown them by helicopter uh, and... Uh, and I tell you, the faces of the dead that I saw were the same as the faces of the young men that I've seen in Ukraine who have been killed in this war. The war, in my view, was totally unnecessary. Uh, it should never have happened. And had, had there been sound leadership, particularly from the United States, uh, which put enormous pressure on the German government, the French government, um, the Brits, they're a different thing. Uh, but in any event, we have a, a chance, I think, to end the war and to uh, end the possibility of nuclear war. So I, I thank you very much for your patience. This concludes my remarks, and I hope that uh, it will help to uh, forestall any uh, World War III talk or talk of nuclear war.